Well, this afternoon, uh, we will actually be taking a brief diversion. We'll be back in Hebrews next week. Um, but we'll be looking at uh, today a passage in the book of Colossians that is actually very near and dear to my heart. It's a passage that I've spent a lot of time in. Uh, the book of Colossians was our, what you might call, experimental material in my second year of Greek. Uh, the first semester was First and Second Thessalonians. The second semester was Colossians. And I took that class twice. Once as an undergrad and then as, a, and as, as a, in my master's degree work. So I became very familiar with this. And my own Greek mentor, <clears throat> when we went through this passage, and he would explain it, <clears throat> and break it down, um, he would be in tears by the time he was done. It's a passage that exalts Christ. It was the first time I'd ever heard it was as a young Christian um, at a church that I was attending in College Station, Texas. And this pastor preached a sermon on the incomparability of Christ. And he preached on this passage and I was in absolute awe. So today we're going to be in that passage today. Uh, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. Let us hear God's word to us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard just now your holy word. Your voice to us. And we pray, Father, we would receive what we have just heard as it is. Your word. May we believe it. May you take your word. And may you increase and strengthen our faith by the work of your spirit. We pray, O oh Father, as we, as we look at this text. That you would take that which is your truth. And that you would be working in each of us according to where, according to what you are purposing. For you are the one who is at work, both to will and to work, according to your good pleasure. And Father, we pray that you would help us that we might be attentive. That we might be trusting you. And we pray for this preacher today. We pray that you would chain him to the text of your word so that he might freely declare truth, that he might do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. And these things we pray, our Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he's confronting a number of different threats that the church at Colossae, that the believers there are facing. He's exhorting them to Remember what it is to be in Him. Those two words are repeated at least 20 times in the first two chapters of this book. In Him. In Him. 20 times depending upon how you might translate some phrases and how you might put words together that are separated by other words because translators aren't always in agreement about all those things. But at least 20 times. It's clearly stated in Him. We see that one of his purposes in chapter 2 is to 
urge them to not fall prey to the various different philosophies and deceptive ideals that might come their way. There appears to have been some sort of a movement that was threatening them that would revolve around uh, the worship of angels and various different forms of what we call asceticism. So what is asceticism? What's that big word mean? Well, it's the idea of causing suffering to yourself. We can see asceticism in different um, false religions throughout the world. In Taiwan, there are Buddhist monks who a certain time of year will have a parade and they will attach a ball with nails to it and they walk through the city streets and they will take and whip themselves with that ball of nails. That's what we call asceticism. That causing oneself suffering in order to make oneself more godly. Now, that does not mean that God does not bring suffering our way. He does bring suffering and difficulty our way. We are not promised that we will have a life free of pain and have life of prosperity and health. But that does not mean that we should that we should bring it upon bring the difficulty upon ourselves intentionally. As well as a temptation to licentiousness. See that in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, to keep their eyes on Christ Jesus, to keep their eyes on the things above where they are truly seated, and on one end to avoid that legalism, and the other end to avoid that licentiousness. But leading up to that exhortation is this language of in Him, the suprem- and in that we see the supremacy and the incomparability of Jesus Christ. And He is saying in this book, what is what we are seeing in this book is that with all that Christ is and everything we have in him, why would we even consider something else? Why would we consider the path of legalism and, or the worship of angels and having some sort of ecstatic experience to bolster our faith when in reality everything we have is right here before us? There's a song that was popular in the 90s. I think some of you might not have been born then. But uh, there was a song that was popular in the 90s. And there was a line there that said, Pour out your power in love. And I admire the desire. But that begins with this fact. He has already poured out his power and love in us and to us in Christ Jesus. And what we see in in the book of Colossians, we see laid before us the absolute sufficiency of Christ Jesus. And in our passage today, we have that laid out to us. And we see that he has established, that he has placed us under the rule of Jesus Christ. And this one under whom we have been placed under the rule of, He has also a certain revelation, and he has a certain rank. We can say that the three R's, to be a good Baptist preacher and alliterate, the rule, the revelation, and the rank of Christ. In verses 13 through 15, we see those three assertions laid out. We see that there is a transfer that has occurred, that Those who are in Christ Jesus have been taken out of one thing and placed into another. And what they've been placed under is the kingdom or the rule of Jesus Christ, which is rooted in redemption. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. We also see that this one under whose rule we have been placed has been revealed as something. He reveals, his revelation is this, he is the image of the invisible God. What does that word image mean? We'll talk about that in a moment. And then we see the rank of Jesus. The rank of Jesus is that he is the firstborn or ranks higher, because the language of firstborn is language of rank, that he ranks over everything and everyone that has been created. So we have the rule, the revelation, and the rank 
of Jesus Christ. And then verses 16 through 20 expound upon those and give us the basis and explanation of those. But it does so in such a way, and here's a fun word, that it's what we call a chiasm. I you say, what is a chiasm? Well, for those of you who maybe were, went to college and you were in a fraternity, you would probably know the word better as a chiasm. It comes from the Greek letter chi, or those of you who learned it as chi. Now, the Greek letter chi or chi looks like the English X. And so think of it this. Those of you who are listening, I'm drawing like an arrow here. So we have, it's an X. It's a way of communicating in which we would say a certain, uh, a cert, certain statements and then deal with those statements in, in, other, in another paragraph or something in reverse order. So let me give you an example. Bill, John, and Mary went to the store. Mary purchased a bat. John purchased a ball. And Bill purchased a glove. So notice uh, they started off with Bill, John, and Mary, and then I dealt with those three in reverse order. And that's, that's a very simple, what we call, chiasm. And in here we have a chiasm in which an argument is being made for why uh, the significance of the fact that we have been placed under the rule of Christ how we can say Jesus is the image of the invisible God and why is it that he ranks above everything that's been created. And he deals with those in reverse order. In verses 15 through 17, or 15 through 18, I should say, he deals with the rank of Christ. In verse 19, he deals with the revelation of Jesus. And in verse 20, he deals with Jesus' rule over us. So first of all, we have something has been asserted about us and our relationship to Jesus. He says of those who are in Christ Jesus, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. His people, all people are born into the domain of darkness. All people are born into this world, are conceived, as it is said in Psalm 51, are conceived in sin and born in sin and in under the domain of darkness. When we went through the book of Ephesians, we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in sin under the power of the ruler of this world. That we were under the domain, under the rule of darkness. But a transfer has occurred such that we are no longer ruled by this domain of darkness and governed by the powers of darkness that govern this age. All throughout the epistles, and particularly the Paul's epistles, different language is used with regard to this transfer. We can see in Romans chapter 6 that we were once, uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8, we were once tied to sin such that when sin said jump, we said how high. But now we are dead to sin. And though even though we're dead to sin, we still, in Romans 7, feel the weight of our the remaining sin. Romans 7, I believe, is speaking to Paul as a believer. And then Romans chapter 8, he says, in spite of that, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of the fact that he has transferred us from one rule to another. No longer is the believer governed by the powers of darkness that govern this age, but the believer has experienced a transfer from one rule to another. A rule that is not common to this world, but a rule that is unique to believers. Into the redemptive kingdom of Jesus Christ that is populated solely by believers who are in Christ Jesus. The community of that rule. It is a kingdom, as Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, is not of this world. 
but it is one that fundamentally is of another age. And so even, even though it remains in the future, it is a present reality for the believer. Ephesians chapter 1 speaks about this present evil age and the age which is yet to come. We now have been transferred into that age which is yet to come and are now citizens of that rule. Jesus is our king. And established he is our ruler. He's transferred us to a new rule. The rule of his son whom the father loves. Remember one of the statements that was made to Jesus at his, ba- at, at his baptism. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Ephesians 1 and 2, we saw that we are in the Beloved One. And in Him we see the very love of God. In Christ Jesus, the One who, according to His divinity, eternally has been loved by the Father and has been loving the Father and is everything that the Father is. Just as the Spirit is everything that the Father is, there is only one will in the Godhead. Then He's beloved according to His incarnation, according to His humanity, loved by God as the final Adam, the one who, as one of us, accomplished for us what we did not since we failed in the garden in Adam and subsequently could not do and died the death that should have been ours as the better and final Adam. We have been transferred to this rule. He rules over us. And we see that how he did this. This beloved son is in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So we transfer this to this rule by means of redeeming us through what his son did which we know to be his death and his resurrection, which he's going to talk about in verse 20. He did this by redeeming us through what his son did. And this redemption entails, includes the forgiveness of sin. There was a heart and soul of redemption, the removal of our sins. And we look at it from the standpoint of a broad New Testament theology, biblical theology, it includes not only the removal of our sins, but the counting of righteousness on our behalf. So there's a rule of Jesus under which we exist. And we see then this Christ who is beloved of the Father, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It makes a statement about him that he is the image of the invisible God. And the second statement, the firstborn of or over all creation. So now we see that this son reveals what God the Father is like, this Father who cannot be seen by anyone. And you hear this word image. There's a number of different pictures that may come our mind. We live in a world of images, pictures. This idea of image could make reference to he is similarity or he is similar or like the Father. Back in the early first 500 years of the church, in particular in the fourth century, that's the 300. In the 4th century, in the 300s, there was a great debate about the identity of Jesus in relationship to the Father. And out of that came what we know as the 19th Creed. And there's one little word in there that was the rub. And the choice was between the Greek word homoousios and homoousios. Those Greek word it means homoousios means of the same substance, and homoousios means of similar 
or Leipzig. And rightfully so, the former won the battle of the same substitute. As a matter of fact, there's a common little phrase that is used that actually comes out of that. Athanasius, the Council of Nicaea, said, not one iota, not one iota of difference. You will not add one iota to the word. And so this couldn't be simply similarity or likeness. We could also look at it in terms of representation. If you have a coin in your pocket, you might, some of us don't carry coins and paper money anymore, but if you happen to have one at some point back here now, you can pull it out and you can see that there's a representation of somebody. Dying will have a picture, a representation of a particular president as well as orders and nickels and all the various different um, coins. And that could be an idea because he represents and we can see what God is like. But I think we're going to see in just a moment that it's more than that. I think a better way of understanding this image is that of manifestation. We have God made manifest to us The image, as John Callow says, John Callow was a unknown in popular circles, so to speak, in you know, every, everyday Christian circles. John Callow was a Bible translator with Wycliffe Bible, Bible translators, and he wrote he wrote all sorts of works on breaking down the text and analyzing the relationships between things. In fact, I'm highly indebted to Callow's analysis of this text. Um, he called it the semantic structure. It means the structure of the meaning. But he says of this, the image has the function of revealing or making manifest that which is inherently invisible. And he does so perfectly. Now the word perfect isn't in the text when we interpret Scripture according to the whole of Scripture, He perfectly reveals to us God. Because, as we'll see in a moment, He is God. And we see, thirdly, that He ranks over everything that has been created. He is the firstborn of all creation, or over all creation. We hear the word of, and we might immediately say, oh, that means he's one of the things being created. Uh, when we study biblical languages, we can look at the word of. And one will see that depending on what scholar one is reading, there's anywhere between 25 uh, to 60 different understandings of what of could be. And I think what we have here is comparative. Or contrasting, he ranks over everything that has been created. Just as one is the ruler of all creation, it means rules over creation. Because the idea of firstborn is not so much the, it speaks, when we speak of someone who's firstborn, ordinarily it means one who is born first in order. But that's not just what it communicates. It commutes, prim commutes primarily the idea of rank. The Old Testament language, one who was firstborn, ranked over all the other ones who were born in the household. The firstborn would get a double portion of the inheritance. And everyone else would get to divvy up equally what was left. So it's a position of rank. And now when we move into verse 16, he then begins expounding upon these three ideas in reverse order as we have touched on. So first of all, we see in verse 16, how is it that he ranks over everything that's been created? Well, we see that it has to do with the fact that he is the creator. We see that for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
You see, he ranks above everything that has been created because it was by means of the Son that all things were created. We hear that language in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 1 and following, in which it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he says, Everything that came into being came into being through him. Not one thing was made that was made without him. And then we see at the end of that passage in verse 18, no one has seen or exegeted or made known God except the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. So he ranks over everything that was created because this one, the Son of God, is according is is because he is divine, the Creator. You must remember that in the person of Jesus we have one who is fully God and fully human. That the human nature has been united to the divine nature, such that there's not confusion. That is. They haven't been melded into some sort of a a hybrid. But nor is there division in the sense that we basically have two people. We have one person, two natures. And yet, the divine nature has not been altered. Sometimes when we read about Jesus, and we hear that the head of Christ is God, there's a whole school of thought that is reading that erroneously that says that the Father ranks over the Son within the Trinity. That's dealing with, that when we see the Christ, we're dealing with the incarnate Son of God. He is subordinate to the Father according to his humanity. The way the Trinity works, we see different things that occur. And by the means of the Son, things were created. How did God create in the Gospel of John chapter in the God, in, sorry in the book of Genesis chapter one? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and the Spirit was hovering over the face of the dark, of the darkness. And God said, "Let there be light." God said, "Let there be light." Let me go back to the Gospel of John chapter one. In the beginning was what. The Word, and the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything that came into being came came into being through Him. We might say this: that the Son, the person of the Son, is the said in God said, "Let there be light." Just as the Son eternally proceeds from the Father, meaning that everything the Father is, the Son is. Meaning that there's also one will. There's not three wills in the Trinity, as some are beginning to border on. There's one will in the Trinity. But it was by means of the Word that all things came into existence. And it was not just some things by which which were created by this by the Son, but all things were created. Nor was it just in some some else some places of all things that were created, but in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. This includes everything in heaven and everything on the earth. We might put it this way. If you and I can see it, he created it. But if you and I cannot see it, he still created it. When we see the unseen, I believe it's referring here to the unseen world, the spiritual realities which we do not see with our eyes, the angelic beings, and even the vast uh, even the vast elements of creation, the universe that we do not see, that we cannot see because we are so finite. 
find it amazing that with new technology, this recent telescope, we're able to see further into the universe and see uh, just the vastness of it. Some folks, some look at that and think that that might uh, shake people's faith. That strengthens my faith because that shows me how grand the Creator is. things, whether we can see it or not see it, were created by him. Furthermore, as we read earlier, all rulers and their rules, both the ones that we see and the ones that we don't see, have been created by him and for him. Every dominion that exists on the face of the earth exists because God has placed it there. Christ, the Son, has created it has established it. Any ruler that exists is there because God created that rule. Including the ones that we might find ourselves uncomfortable with. He placed them there according to his providence and his creative work. And furthermore, he even created the unseen rulers. He created all the angelic beings. He even created the the devil and the demons who fell. All of those are under the creation of the Son, under the authority and the rule of the Son, under the sustenance and sustaining and providential work of the Son and the Spirit. Dealing specifically here with the Son. Whether they be human authorities or spiritual powers, it is by the Son that they've come into existence. And it wasn't just simply the past, but it includes the present. See that all things are created through Him and for Him. Again, placing equality with the Father. He ranks above everything that's been created since all things have been created not only by Him but for His sake, being God. And so He's glorified by the creation. Thus, when we see in the Psalms, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, it's also saying, praise the Son. It's saying, praise the Spirit. We see that he existed, being the creator, existed before all things that were created because it says he was before everything. Before there was a before, which I don't know how any other way to say that. Because before there was a before, there was no before. But I have no other way to say that. Before there was a before, there was the sun. Again, read that in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The one to be there in the beginning would imply pre-existence. And also we see the present work of the Son in this. And in Him, all things hold together. Everything is held together by Him. The Son being God is the glue along with the Father and the Son of uh, the Spirit is the glue that holds the universe together. Uh, I have an old friend of mine. I haven't talked to him in years. I've worked with him. But he heard that statement one time and he's a believer but he also has a degree a master's degree in advanced physics. And he heard that and he thought, that doesn't make sense to me. He said, it's other other things that hold the world together. I said, he uses means. He uses means and things he's created to hold the world together. And he's even governing all those things. And presently directing all those things. The Son, our Savior, is providentially ruling over the entire universe. 
which includes our very existence right here and now. Everything is held together by him. So that's the first reason for him ranking over everything. We see the second reason for him ranking over everything here in verse 17. I mean, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So we see that he is head over everything, including the new creation which he created by means of his redemptive work. He's he's head over the people of that creation, the church. You see, he created redemption. Created a new creation. Do we not hear in the book of 1 Corinthians, if any wasn't in Christ, he is a new creation. Remember when Adam, when we in Adam ate of that fruit of the tree, we forfeited the old creation. The vice regent, he damaged the whole thing. It can't, that old creation cannot be fixed. There's only a new creation, and Christ accomplished that new creation. He didn't begin the new creation. He completed the new creation. He didn't start it and then we finish it. But he accomplished it in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And he's head over his body, the church. He's head over the people of that creation, the church. He's all, we've already established that he's head over all things that's been created. And he's head over his church in a way that he's not head over everything else. It's a different relationship. Just as, just as we say that God loves his people in a way that he does not love the unbeliever. He loves, the, uh, he loves all creatures and all humans as creator. But not according to a covenant, indefatigable love. That means it cannot be fatigued. And being the head, he is the source of life for his church. I love the illustrations in the New Testament about the relationship of Christ to his body being the head. How would our bodies be able to function without our heads? There would be no function. The heart would stop beating, the lungs would stop breathing, the limbs would stop moving. Because all the the various different orders and such come from the head to the rest of the body. And so it is in relationship with Christ to his people. He is the head of his church, the source of life. We are nothing without Jesus Christ. For he ranks over everything that's been created. And he ranks over the new creation that he has made. He is the source of that new creation. By means of his redeeming work in Jesus Christ, he is the head and founder of his body. We see that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here's the second use of the word firstborn. He's the firstborn over all creation. And now it says he's firstborn from the dead. Here we have another first. He is the first to rise from the dead. So what about Lazarus? Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, but here's the thing with Lazarus. Lazarus is dead now. He's back in his grave somewhere, wherever that might be. Jesus rose from the dead and is still alive, for he conquered death. Risen, as the book of Romans says, by the power of spirit so he is the first to rise from the dead meaning he is the first of many 
He has brought resurrection life now to his people, brought us to life from death in which we existed. And, but yet we're still tied to the death of the old creation. And death is still a reality for the believer. There's coming a day where if the Lord, uh, the Lord tarries, that each of us in this room will uh, at some point be uh, die and go into a grave or other form of story. But that's not the end. For we too shall rise from the dead. Bodily, in the newness of life, and the body's made new, and they rise to eternal life in the presence of God, body and soul. There will also be resurrection for the unbeliever, but resurrection unto eternal hell. But here we see this results in the end of all things being that the Son is preeminent in everything. You see, Jesus, according to his divinity, he already had that. He's already, according to his divinity, first in everything. According to his humanity, as the final Adam, he earned this place. As the final Adam, as the better Adam. He earned the place of name above all names. Earned the place of preeminence. And as such, being in him, he is our brother, our prophet, our priest, our king. Then we also see that he is the image of... We, we then see the... Uh, we, <clears throat> we then now move to the second, of the, the second of those assertions. We just dealt with the third. The second assertion is the revelation of Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, that because he, that he perfectly reveals who and what God is. I made a few statements earlier, but fundamentally what we see here in the argument that's in verse 19 is that in him is the perfect union of the human nature to the divine nature. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The reason the Son, the reason Jesus the Christ perfectly reveals to us everything that God is, is because he is God. He is everything the Father is. Just as the Spirit is everything the Father and the Son are actually to speak properly because Trinitarian language is very difficult to wrap our minds around. He is everything that the Father and the Son is. I had a professor in seminary who said we should mess up, we should speak with improper, we suggested we speak with improper grammar to illustrate the Trinity and say that uh, three is one and one are three illustrate the nature of the Trinity. That is like fingernails on a chalkboard to me, but it speaks to it, it does testify of the reality. But here we see the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Everything God is is revealed to us through Christ Jesus. When he walked the earth, the men discussed and when he walked the earth, he demonstrated such authority. He demonstrated that he had authority for the very demons listening to him. And as the final Adam, he defeated sin. For being fully God, he could not sin. So thus, when we see Jesus, we... God. When we see Jesus, we see God. My own mentor in New Testament Greek, Roy Metz, said in a sermon, walking through the Gospel of Mark, he said, what we have here is that God is on the loose 
and all heaven is breaking out. And then we see, go back to the first assertion, the rule of Christ over his people. God has transferred us, as we looked at earlier, from one rule to another, from the domain of darkness into the domain of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, into his rule. And he's caused us to be ruled by his Son since God our Father chose to reconcile to himself by means of his Son that which was lost in Adam. We see that, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He established a new creation for which the whole of creation longs from Romans chapter 8. In that, in such, the Son is glorified. When we look at Jesus in the book of John, he says over and over, my my day of glory is coming. What is his day of glory? It was the day of his suffering. It was the day of his cross. Because the cross would not be the end, because there was resurrection. When we think of the death of Jesus Christ, we must not think of it as some sort of a unfortunate martyrdom. There was someone who, a prominent person, who at some sort of event that was largely Christian, treated the death of Jesus, and this person identifies as evangelical, treated the death of Jesus as an unfortunate martyrdom when this person said, if Jesus had the means to defend himself, he would not have died on the cross. And that's unfortunately harnessing the truth of Jesus Christ for something that the death of Jesus Christ was not intended to speak about. Whether you agree with uh, the principle that they're speaking of is another. Is whether we, that's an entirely different matter. But that treated the death of Jesus as an unfortunate martyrdom, whereas his death was necessary. It was purposeful. And in that, we have been reconciled to himself. He is the, just as we were the vice, re, in Adam was the vice regent of the creation there in Genesis. And when he fell, all of creation was affected. Jesus is now the vice regent of a new creation. The ruler of a new creation. And we have been brought into that creation. And all of creation longs for that. When we look at the Gospel of John and we see the resurrection account in chapter 20, we see that Mary is in the garden and she is grieving because Jesus is no longer in the grave. In the grave, He's gone. And she sees a gardener. And the gardener says, Why are you weeping? They said, They have taken my Lord. Do you know where they've taken him? And she did not see who could tell who it was, but then she said, he said her name, Mary, and she recognized Jesus, said Rabboni. We have so much unpacked in that little little section when we look in the light of all of biblical history. For what do we have in there? We have God and man are together in a garden again. And Adam is back in the garden. For the final Adam is there in this garden. And we have been brought into that, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because in verse 21, which we're not going to get to, we're not going to expound on that as well, he says, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, and you, and you, to reconcile be reconciled to you who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. We've been reconciled to him by the blood of, of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, there are all sorts of things competing for our attention. 
competing for our loyalty. And for the believer, especially for the one who, who knows the word, which really should be, which really should be every, well, there's new belief, everyone has growth. As we grow, we grow in the knowledge of the word. We must remember that our enemy has many, 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 many years of experience. And for the believer who loves, for the one who loves the Lord, it's kind of oxymoron to say the believer who loves the Lord. It's the same thing. But for the believer, the enemy comes to us and tempts us not in ways that are patently, obviously against God's word. Rather, he comes to us very deceptively in the garb of righteousness, just enough righteousness and just enough truth to deceive us and to draw us away. We must be wary that we are not drawn away from this one who is Christ Jesus, who is our ruler, who ranks over everything that's been created and who is the very image of the invisible God. For we cannot be drawn away from that. We cannot allow ourselves as a church and individually to be distracted from that because the way of being taken captive by empty empty philosophies of deceit typically does not come with a giant swallow. But rather, it comes in little things that we have mistaken for truth. Because it might sound good. So brothers and sisters, let us be aware and let us keep before our eyes this one who rules over us, who reveals to us everything that God is, and who ranks over everything that thing for you. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus rules over us, that we have been transferred in him from one domain to another, a domain of death from one, a domain of death to the domain of life. And that this is a sure and certain transfer and the hope in that is sure and certain because the one under whom we sit exists, reveals everything that you are and ranks over everything that's been created. May we keep him before our eyes, our minds, and our hearts. May we never be bored with Jesus. May we never think that we've outgrown that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.